One of the things that has always baffled me is to hear reports of people who refuse to leave their home in the face of a major storm. Now, I'm not talking about minor storms, like a Category 1 hurricane, for example, but catastrophic storms, Categories 4 and 5, where officials are pleading with people to leave. Hurricane Katrina struck in 2005, and despite the advance warnings given to people, a lot of people stayed behind, and many of those images are burned in our minds as some 1,800 people lost their lives in that storm. Katrina, Category 5 storm. It's the most deadly and destructive storm in U.S. history. Now, I know that here in America we have this streak that no one can tell me what to do and I'm going to do things my way. But can you imagine being the public official who is charged with communicating the urgency of the danger that people face if they do not heed the warnings? I think that would be a very frustrating place to be. And to see people completely ignoring and, and putting themselves in danger and other people in danger who are coming to the rescue, uh, that just must be very frustrating. Well, there is a sense of urgency in the text that we're going to look at today from the Gospel of Luke. Jesus has, has been in the northern part of Israel around the Sea of Galilee for the first part of his ministry, the first couple years. And now in chapter 9, we've learned that, that uh, Jesus has set his face like flint to make his way to Jerusalem. He is on a mission, and he knows he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be crucified. He's going to make atonement for the sins of his people. He's going to be raised again on the third day and crown the world's true king, who will be given all authority in heaven and on earth. And so what the passage we're going to look at today in chapter 10 is going to show us is that Jesus is sending some advanced teams to the towns on the way to Jerusalem. This will be the last time that Jesus will be preaching in these towns. And so he's sending his disciples on ahead of him to set up meetings and to let people know Jesus is coming. And he's also going to give them the same authority and power to communicate the gospel of the kingdom of God that Jesus himself was so passionate about. And so if you're here today and you're simply exploring Christianity, one of the things that you're going to see in this passage is that Jesus makes an audacious claim. He's going to claim that to hear him and to receive his message is to hear God and to receive the message from God. But to reject Jesus is to reject God himself. Now that is a, an audacious claim, granted. But what I want you to do is I want you to ask the question, what if Jesus is right? And if you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus, you're going to be encouraged to engage the mission of Jesus afresh and to increase your heart's capacity to want to be involved in the ministry of Jesus himself. And so... We're going to be back in the Gospel of Luke. It's good news of great joy for all people. And we're going to call our study today, The Lord of the Harvest. It's one of those famous passages of Jesus where he refers to God as the, the Lord of the Harvest. And we're going to see why he uses that passage, or that phrase rather, in this passage in just a moment. But as we get ready to open up the scriptures, let's pray and ask God to have his way with us this morning. Lord, as we have the privilege of opening this ancient gospel account written by this physician turned missionary turned biographer of Jesus named Luke. Thank you that we have a copy of the life of Jesus that we can look at, that we can explore, that we can see what Jesus has to say. And so we thank you for the way that Luke carefully investigated the life of Jesus and composed this gospel so that we would be certain of the things that he said and has done. I pray that you would give us ears to hear. You know where we are this morning. You know 
uh, the things that burden us and weigh us down. And would you just meet us here this morning? Reset our lives on Jesus and reset our lives on the mission of Jesus this day. We pray in his name. Amen. This is how Luke chapter 10, verse 1 begins. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Now, Luke doesn't really spend a whole lot of time uh, describing Jesus here. He just refers to him as the Lord. And I think this is interesting. If you were to ask any Hebrew living at the time of Jesus who was the Lord, they would have said that was the creator of the heavens and the earth, and they would have been right. And so Luke is just using that phrase to describe Jesus himself. And we're meant to see the closest connection of Jesus to the creator of the heavens and the earth. And so we're told that the Lord appointed 72 others and he sent them on ahead of him. Your Bible may say 70. There's a a debate about the right way to translate that. But what I want us to see here is that the mission of Jesus is expanding. Back just one chapter, the beginning of chapter 9, we're told that Jesus called together the 12 and he gave them power and authority and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. And now there's 70 more that Jesus is sending out and entrusting with his message. And he says this in verse 2. He said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Here Jesus compares the people in front of him to a field that is ripe for harvest. And Christians ever since that day have seen this world as a harvest field. And here Jesus tells these disciples that he's sending on mission, not only to go on this mission, but also to pray that God would raise up other laborers for this harvest. And so Jesus tells them in verse 3, go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Here Jesus is giving them a heads up. He's saying, it's going to be tough out there. There's going to be people who oppose my message that I'm entrusting to you. He doesn't tell them he's sending them out as wolves among lambs, but rather he's sending them out as lambs among wolves. There's going to be opposition and maybe even danger in proclaiming the message. And so Jesus communicates the urgency from which they need to leave. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Don't don't make preparations. Don't pack your suitcase. Just go. And don't even greet people on the road. I don't think Jesus is telling people to be rude. I think he's using hyperbole here to just say, go. This message is urgent. I want you to go. I'm coming to these towns. Prepare the way. And then in verse 5 he says, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. Now, this is interesting. Jesus doesn't tell his disciples, some 70 plus now, to go and speak a word of condemnation or even a word of judgment or even confrontation. Jesus says, communicate to them peace. Peace be upon this house. And Jesus says, if there's a son of peace there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. This idea of peace is very key in the Gospels. All the way back in Luke chapter 2, at the birth announcement of Jesus, the angels come and they're announcing in song, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those 
whom, on whom his favor rests. Peace was very much a part of the message from the very beginning. And so Jesus tells his people to communicate this idea. Now, they were probably speaking in the language of Aramaic at the time. The, Greek, uh, the New Testament is written in Greek. The people spoke in Aramaic. But the idea of peace is long embedded in the Jewish language of Hebrew. And the word is shalom. Sometimes people today even use this as a greeting. People who are not Jews. It's, it's, a, it's a communication of well-being. But in the biblical story, it means may you be whole. May you be well. May you be sound. May blessings be upon you. May you flourish as a human being. And this looks back to the original design of creation. This is what God wanted for his creation. So in Luke, the offer of peace, the announcement of peace, is tied to the gift of salvation that Jesus offers. And I think this is so important. Jesus doesn't tell them to get ready for battle. He doesn't use militaristic language here. He simply says, go and announce peace, and I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. I love what William Blake said. He said, the glory of Christianity is to conquer by forgiveness. There's an announcement of peace from God, of peace from Jesus. And he's seeking to conquer our hearts by this offer of forgiveness. Verse 7, Jesus continues, And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. I hear Jesus says, if you find a, a house that welcomes you, peace be upon it. And I think he's saying, use this as a base of communication. There is a person there that is designated already by me to receive you and to partner with you. And so eat what they set before you. And I'm giving you authority to heal in my name and to tell people the kingdom of God has come near you. Now, we've already seen in the Gospel of Luke Jesus doing some utterly amazing things, what can only be described as the miraculous. Power comes out of Jesus and heals people. People are cured of lifelong diseases like blindness. Even the dead are raised again. And so Jesus isn't doing mere magic tricks the power of this coming future kingdom is active in Jesus. And when he heals people, that's a foretaste of the future. That's a pushing back of the effects of sin and brokenness on this world. And now Jesus gives his disciples this same kind of power. And he says, when you heal people, when you announce to people this peace, tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. God is on the march. God is reclaiming his wayward and broken creation. Now, We've seen already how Jesus was obsessed with the kingdom of God. You can even say this is the theme of Jesus' preaching. And to the degree we understand that concept of the kingdom of God, to that degree we get what Jesus is all about. And in our series of Luke already, we've talked about how the kingdom of God is the kind reign of God breaking into this world. The scriptures tell the story of a good creation that has gone bad because of human rebellion and God seeking to bring about a new rule in the place of Adam and Eve, a new ruler who would rule in righteousness and be able to set this world to right. And you may remember this diagram I had. This kingdom of God is, is an umbrella term capturing a lot of different notions, things like justice and mercy and forgiveness of sins, righteousness, flourishing, the privilege of knowing God, eternal life, and, and shalom. 
This is what Jesus himself preached about. This is what he communicated to his disciples to preach. The kingdom is coming near to you in the name of Jesus Christ. God is on the move, trying to establish, seeking to establish, will establish a new world order, or what we might say, just a new way of things being done. Another way of putting it is in Jesus, this world is under new management. I love the way that Jeremy Treat summarized this. The kingdom of God is the vision of the world reordered around the powerful love of God in Christ. That's about as good a definition as I can, I can come up with, or reference, or come up with on my own, if I were to be able to write like Jeremy Treat. And so the kingdom of God is the vision of the world reordered around the powerful love of God in Christ. This is the message entrusted to these disciples. Verse 10, Jesus gives the hint of opposition arising. He says, But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. What is Jesus doing here? He's giving them an, a, a parable that they can enact to demonstrate how they have rejected the kingdom of God. And to understand this, we need to understand a ritual that many Jews went through when they left the national bounds of Israel and then returned. Israel itself was considered sacred land, the place where God met his people and from which he wanted the gospel of the kingdom to go forward. And then they went out to other nations and traveled doing whatever they were doing. Those were considered unclean nations. And so when they entered back into the border of Israel, they would wipe off the sand and the dirt from their feet as an indication that they're now on holy ground. And so here Jesus gives them this parable. He says, if people reject you because of me, wipe off the dirt from your sandals. And in this, you're communicating to them that they are bypassing and missing the opportunity for reconciliation with God, that new future that they're hoping for. They might be left out of it. But nevertheless, say to them, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. So even in that visual sign that demonstrates that the the grace of the kingdom is bypassing them, there is this grace to know that the kingdom of God has come near them. Verse 12, Jesus says, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Here he raises up one of the most notorious towns from the Hebrew history of their people. It was a place of inhospitality. Is that the right way of putting it? Um, You know what I'm trying to say. I have to go back and go and just have a cringe factor in this moment. They They were notorious for being inhospitable. They were notorious for being selfish. They were notorious for using and abusing people sexually. And so that place was judged. And here Jesus says, look, it's gonna be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for the towns that will reject the message of the kingdom that you're giving them. Here Jesus points to that day. And any Hebrew would have understood they're talking about the day of the Lord when God does establish his kingdom, when he does set this world to right. And so he says it's going to be more bearable for Sodom. That, that town that is an archetype for wickedness than it will be for these towns who reject the message of the kingdom. He goes on and says, Woe to you, Chorazin, Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. 
Here Jesus takes several towns around the Sea of Galilee where he spent the majority of his time ministering to people and preaching about the kingdom. And he says, the effect of the gospel was not what it should have been in those places. Many people rejected it. And so they saw the miracles that I did. And if those had been done in Tyre and Sidon, these are two more notorious cities that the prophets of Israel uh, lamented over the wickedness contained in there. He says, if the works that I did in the towns around the Sea of Galilee had been done even in these wicked towns, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And he says again, it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum. Capernaum was the base of operations for Jesus' ministry. It's a little fishing village on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. That's his base of operation. And so if they wanted to boast and put up a sign that said Jesus was here, <laughs> they wanted to exalt themselves. He says, you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. You have the privilege of having the Son of God in your midst, and you love listening to him. You love seeing the things that he did. But your hearts were hardened, and you didn't give yourself in response to the good news. Jesus would say in the Gospel of John, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's a very perceptive description of Jesus about the way of this world. Jesus says some people love darkness. They don't want to answer the call of my gospel, to receive the good news of forgiveness of sins because they love darkness rather than the light. They don't want to come in and have their deeds exposed. They want to remain control of their life to do whatever the heck it is they want to do. So you can see why Tim Keller, for example, in his book, The Reason for God, said, hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory into infinity. No one spoke about the reality of people spending an eternity in judgment apart from the kingdom of God than Jesus. But you can understand the logic of it. If people now love darkness rather than the light, if people love the, their, uh, their self-centeredness, their insistence on being their own Lord more than they love Jesus, just map that desire from here on out. If that's the way people want it now, in this life, then in the life to come, why would they want anything different? And so you can see why C.S. Lewis said, and we've referenced this quote before, there are only two kinds of people, those who say, thy will be done to God, or those to whom God in the end says, thy will be done. Jesus here sends his disciples on ahead of him, pronouncing blessing and peace in the offer of salvation. And some people are going to respond to it, and some people aren't. And this is how this section ends, verse 16. Jesus says, the one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Did you catch that? Jesus already has told them to expect opposition. That's just part of what's going to happen. But he tells them, the one who hears you, hears me. There are going to be people who hear you. 
their hearts are going to be ready to receive this message. And they're going to receive me. But the one who rejects you rejects me. That's ultimately who they're rejecting. And the one who rejects me rejects my Father who sent me. So you see this line of of direction. God the Father sends the Son, and the Son is sending the disciples out into this world. And if the world rejects the disciples, that means they reject the Son of God, and they reject God the Father who comes seeking forgiveness for people. Jesus would later say, to his disciples on the night that he was crucified, or I guess the night before he was crucified, he, he had this communication with them. Peace be with you, he says. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So let's ask this question, my friends. Why do you think Luke wants us to understand what happened in this moment? This vital point when Jesus sets his face like flint to go to Jerusalem, to bear the sins of many. To see this episode where he sends his disciples ahead of them and to know that they're going to experience opposition and they're going to experience some people receiving what they have to say. You see, Luke is all about helping us understand Jesus. That's why he compiled this gospel. He investigated the life of Jesus, interviewed eyewitnesses, spoke to Mary, spoke to the disciples. He composed this gospel so we may know about Jesus. And he wants us to understand that Jesus himself is the mouthpiece of God. To understand and embrace Jesus is to understand and embrace God. And he also wants us to understand that Jesus wants us to be praying about his mission. Because this world, even though there are people who are rejected, is like a harvest field. And it's white for the harvest. And so if I may summarize it for us, it would be something like this. The Lord of the harvest wants to use folks like us to extend the offer of of the peace of his kingdom. Or to put it slightly differently, the Lord of the harvest wants to use folks like us to tell other people about Jesus and his kingdom. So just three points of application, my friends, to this study. The first one is this. Receive the royal summons. Receive the royal summons. We have the immense privilege here this day to hear of God's heart to our wayward world and how he loved this world and sent Jesus. And Jesus not only gave this message to his disciples, he prayed for the people who would hear the message of the disciples. And so from the time of Jesus through 2,000 years, the gospel has fallen on our ears. We have had the privilege of hearing about the good news of Jesus. And it's not an instruction to go and perform a bunch of good deeds in the hope that your, your good outweighs your bad. It's simply a summons to receive Jesus. Jesus offers peace. Do we want it? There's an old cowboy actor by the name of Dale Evans Rogers who had this great quote I came across this past week. He said, the most important question in anyone's life is the question asked by poor Pilate in the Gospel of Matthew. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Christ? No other question in the whole sweep of human experience is as important as this. It is the choice between life and death, between meaningless existence and life abundant. My friends, one of the reasons we helped establish Mercy Hill Church is because we want it to be a safe place where people can hear the gospel to process its claims, to be able to ask questions and to move toward Jesus. And so we encourage that. We want you to ask questions. But we also want to say at some point, questions can be used as an excuse not to embrace Jesus. At some point, we have heard enough. 
and we simply need to respond to the good news of Jesus. And so I'm not sure exactly where you are this day. Some of you have believed in Jesus a long time ago. Some of you may be just listening to this first time through our feed or here out of a habit, but you've never personally received this royal summons of Jesus to believe in him. I love what Kevin DeYoung said. He said, everyone who comes in contact with Jesus has rendered a judgment on him. Even ignoring him is a decision about his identity. So my friends, there is a long history of people who have rejected Jesus. And there is a long history of people who have heard the good news of Jesus and responded to it. Where are you in that long history? You see, when you receive the good news of Jesus, you're welcomed into his kingdom. No strings attached. You're granted forgiveness and eternal life and relationship with God the Father. And when that happens, your entire story is rewritten around Jesus. We sang this earlier, but I want to slow it down a little bit. And think about these words. When you embrace Jesus, this becomes your story. I once was lost in darkest night. Remember Jesus talking about how people love the darkness? I once was lost in darkness, darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. My friends, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, his disposition towards you is nothing but grace. He has blessing for you. He has peace for you. And you're called to step into that with everything you've got. So that's the first point of application. Receive the royal summons. Here's the second one. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. In this passage, Jesus tells his people to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers for the harvest. And so I just have a question for you. Do you ever pray for the mission of Jesus? Do you believe that he wants you to be praying that God would raise up folks who can speak winsomely to this lost world about the good news of Jesus? When we say the Lord's Prayer, we pray for that coming kingdom. But I wonder if we might be able to pray more and to pray that God would raise up people to send them throughout the world, but even here in our own town. This place that we live in, that we indwell, that we call home, this place itself has lots of people who need to hear the gospel. So can we pray that God would, would send people to hear them, to, to, uh, that they might hear the gospel? And here, here's a, maybe a really practical tip. I started doing this when I was a part of a church planning network in Canada. And we all set our clocks to 10.02 a.m. 10.02, why? Because Luke chapter 10, verse 2, is exactly where Jesus tells us that this harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, uh, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest that he may raise it up. And so I wonder, maybe one practical way of obeying Jesus would be to set a timer on your phone or on your watch They would give you a beep and a note that you might just pause for a moment and ask God to raise up more and more people to proclaim the good news of Jesus. I think we could do that. The Apostle Paul asked the question, 
How are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So let's pray for the mission of Jesus here in our own town and ask that God would raise up people who can proclaim his gospel well. And so here's the third point and final point of application. Let's engage the mission of Jesus. Let's engage the mission of Jesus. Now, with this graphic here, if you were to to map your passion for engaging in the gospel of Jesus' mission, where would you rate yourself? Would you be at 20%, maybe 50% or, or 90%? I want us to ask ourselves the question, how might, how might we become the answer to our own prayers? If we were to ask God to raise up more people who will talk about Jesus winsomely to our culture, could we ourselves become the answer to that prayer? Jesus himself told his disciples after he was crucified and had been risen been raised from the dead, and now he's giving them his final instructions. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem to make atonement for the sins of his people, people like you and me, and also to be crowned as the world's true king. It wasn't how people thought was going to happen. Jesus himself took death upon himself and laid in that grave And God raised him from the dead. And with the resurrection, Jesus is now crowned the world's true Lord and the world's true king. And so he gives us as a church the commission to go and make disciples. So that's our responsibility, corporately and individually as well. Listen to how the Apostle Paul put it. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He said, God, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ... God was reconciling, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Here the Apostle Paul describes their commissioning from Jesus to be ambassadors for him. And throughout the ages, Christians have taken that mantle upon themselves to understand that that God himself entrusts us like ambassadors who are entrusted with a message to carry to another country. We are entrusted with this message to carry around this world and right here to our very home. We are ambassadors for Christ as though Christ were making his appeal through us. And so let me ask you the question. How might you raise your level of engagement in the mission of Jesus. Let's just say by 5%. We want to be white hot, but wherever we are, is there a way that maybe we could increase that engagement in the mission of Jesus ourselves? There's a book called The Best Kept Secret of Christian Mission by John Dixon. I would commend it to you, but in it he writes, the best kept secret of Christian mission is that the Bible lists a whole range of activities that promote Christ to the world and draw others to them. And he gives uh, to him, gives an example. There's prayer, which we've been talking about, financial partnerships with people who proclaim the gospel of Jesus. Our own Jimmy and Jana Rourke work with Valor here at Texas A&M, a ministry to cadets. And Jimmy's entrusted as well with going around the world. Could we help support people like them who are proclaiming the gospel? I think we can. 
We can also adorn the gospel by the way that we live. An attractiveness about the way we live communicates so much about the gospel of Jesus. We can answer questions. We can engage in daily conversation, talking to people about the things that matter most, asking really good questions ourselves. And then, of course, there's public worship. When we gather together, and what we do here together is itself a witness to the glory of Jesus, to visitors who come, to people who overhear it in this hotel, to people who know that we're here rallied around the Lord Jesus. So let me ask you this question. Actually, I want you to ask this question of yourself. How might I become the answer to my prayer for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers of his harvest? I'm not asking if you'll go stand on the street corner and preach Jesus. I don't know very many people who are gifted in that way to do that. But I'm asking you, is there some way that you could become the answer to your prayer and even to the prayer of the disciples who prayed that God would send out more harvesters. God never asks about our ability or our inability, only our availability. God doesn't say, let me, let me look at your resume and see if you're good enough, see if you're accomplished enough, see if you're recognized enough. Jesus used the 12 disciples originally, <laughs> and he turned the world upside down with them. That was a motley crew of crazy folks, if there ever was one. Uneducated fishermen, most of them. And they turned the world upside down for Jesus. So God doesn't ask about your ability or inability, but simply our availability. Are you willing to be used by God in the harvest of precious souls who need to hear the gospel and respond to it? We sang this earlier. Oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose.